you're listening to a message from Kaleo Phoenix, a church plant in downtown Phoenix that creates space for people to practice the ways of Jesus together. It's good to see you all tonight. We're talking about hell. So we're going to open the doors up. We're going to feel it a little bit. No, we're not actually talking about hell, but we are in our stained glass series or season, if you will. Typically, here at Kalea, we practice the church calendar, which is uh, the lectionary. And we believe that seasons are helpful for us to be present in where we're at at the moment, but also anticipate where we're going. And all of the story of scripture points us in this way of this divine narrative that tells us what God is like and how much God loves us. During the summer, it's called ordinary time. And there are lectionary readings where it's people a lot smarter than us come up with these scriptures and we are in different years. And and this year, we decided throughout the summer, because there is no ordinary time at this point, maybe we'll get to a new ordinary, but that has been destroyed So we decided we're going to go through each one of these stained glass windows and talk about what they represent. We believe that beauty will save the world and there's beauty found in this place. So this week, we, for the next two weeks actually, are going to be focusing on the crucifixion. And you can look over here to your right, the second window from the front, the crucifixion. I'm going to give you just a moment. It's on the screen as well. I just want to give you a moment for this window uh, just to speak to you, if it will, to take some time in this space and the air conditioning on this Sunday evening and allow the crucified Christ, even in its cleaned up beautiful form, to speak over this room. Jesus We're present to you tonight. That is our prayer. That your spirit moves us and continues to draw us with the gravitational pull of your love towards your cross. God, even though we won't have the words, I pray that the cross looms large in this room tonight. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, if you look through human history, there is no other symbol other than the cross that has been displayed to the extent in which it has. We see it everywhere, and not only on churches, even though we see them all over this room, we see crosses everywhere. We see them on buildings, we see them on walls, we see them on shirts, we see them on jewelry, we see them on skin, Nike and Coca-Cola would pay trillions of dollars over time to get that type of marketing. And what it is, is the cross is a symbol. And what that symbol does is it points beyond itself to something else. And that's what we're going to talk about a little bit tonight. But before we do so, I just want to share a quick experience that I had in college. I was a senior and undergraduate, and I was a fine young Christian studies major. I was a bad boy, rebellious at my Christian school doing my thing. And there was this guy, he was a freshman, and he had a big old cross tattooed on his arm. 
I, I didn't hate it. I didn't have tattoos at the time. It wasn't a badly done cross, and it had a Greek word across the horizontal beam. And just so you guys know, I was a Greek biter too, so... Yeah, no big deal, but listen to everything I say because I'm smarter with the Bible than everyone <laughs> because of the original language. But anyways, he had this word across his arm, and it said, so Terry, I'm a thuh. I still remember it because it stood out to me so much. And I asked him, even though I had a pretty good idea of what it meant, I said, what does that mean? And he pointed, and he said, it means forgiveness. And I didn't correct him because that's just rude. And although I was arrogant, I wasn't you know, a jerk. And I was like, mm, it, I get why you think that, but soterios is the root word for salvation and everyone should know that. And so it doesn't really mean forgiveness. It means salvation, but I'm not sure about this ending. So I go to my introductory to Greek, you know, vocabulary terms, how to figure out how to parse. And this is, even English has this type of like parsing. So just so y'all know, like we can all be together in this grammar uh, sermon. So I go to my textbook and I start looking for this amatha, this the, and it ends up to be this like perfect passive ending, which makes the root word salvation come out to, we save ourselves. Blasphemy. So I ran and I told him really, I'm, I didn't tell him, but he's walking around in sin, even I'm, <laughs> I just, I don't know. It makes me sad for him. I don't know his name. He does not listen to any sermons or podcasts from Kaleo. If he does, now you know. Uh, laser removal hurts, I heard. But you probably should or cover it up or something. I don't know. Uh, but I, I just thinking of that term, like we save ourselves, even though his intention was like forgiveness, this cross being on his arm tattooed permanently, like a lot of us in this room probably have a cross somewhere on them, on their body, on their skin, on their neck, wherever. It has this just dynamic meaning, but it's also kind of hard to explain. We have the simple answer. Well, yeah, this cross is where Jesus forgave our sins or died in our place or the historical answer. It's because the Pharisees and the religious leaders wanted him dead. And we think of this and we sit in the light of the cross and we see the beauty, even this room was designed in such a way that you ascend up the steps into this high vaulted ceiling that points your gaze to the cross. It's big and it looms large, but it is something that points beyond itself. It wasn't always a beautiful gold-plated decoration that makes us feel good and identifies us just as Christians or Christ followers. Scandalous. It was dangerous. It was humiliating. And it was shameful. So Jesus, our crucified Christ on the cross. We're going to read... Matthew's version of the passion story together. And normally, you know, you think I was talking to my buddy who's in the back, Ryan, the other day about I'm preaching on the cross. He was like, that's normally like a Good Friday thing. And I'm like, you're exactly right. The cross is a huge part of Good Friday. Um, but let's talk about like this scene on a good Sunday that's really hot outside in the thick of it. We're getting through it, guys. We're going to make it. But we're going to read through the Passion Story. But before we do so, again, I'd just like to, to pray for a moment. 
God, as we collectively pause for a moment together in this room, I pray that the power of that dark day, it moves in us in such a way, God, that we can only point to you. God, the, the upbringing in the church or outside of the church that we've come through and our ideology of the cross and our things, God, I pray that we just put that on hold for a moment, can be present in this space tonight. King Jesus, the victor, it's in your name that we pray, amen. All right, guys, fun's over. Let's take a deep breath together. One, two, three, in through your nose, out through your mouth. Matthew 27, verse 32 through 56 reads as follows. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry his cross, the cross of Jesus, when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall. But when he tasted it, he did not drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there to keep watch over him. Over his head, they put a charge against him that read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right, one on his left. Those who passed by decried him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also along with the scribes and elders were mocking him, saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to. For he said, I'm God's son. The bandits who were crucified with them also taunted him in the same way. It's a pretty brutal scene of mockery and shame. Jesus on the cross. Now, the cross and crucifixion have been painted in many ways. Some of them are elegant and beautiful, and we look at it and we get the artistic expression in the window. You see the side, and you see the cleanliness and the loincloth and the, even the elevation of Jesus, but this scene was anything other than beautiful. It was messy. It was bloody. And it was humiliating. 
So as we get the artistic expression because we see the beauty of the cross in hindsight now compelled by the spirit of God to see the beauty of that atoning sacrifice that Jesus had on the cross, we mustn't ever get beyond the context of the cross. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that today. And it is going to be a little intense at times as we walk through what a crucifixion looks like. Before we do so, however, I want to give a couple quotes from people around that time. Cicero, a Roman senator and a scholar, stated that everything to do with, with crucifixion, including the word crux itself, should be far removed, not only from a person of Roman citizenship, but also in his thoughts, his eyes, and his ears. For it is not only the actual occurrence of these things or the endurance of them, but liability to them, the ex expectation indeed the very mention of them that is unworthy of a Roman citizen or free man. So this isn't polite table talk. This isn't even talk that you want to listen to. It is such a disgraceful act that Roman citizens are not even to say the word crux, which is where we get the word crucifixion. Seneca describes it as a long drawn out affair in which the victim would be wasting away in pain, dying limb by limb, letting out his life drop by drop, fastened to the accursed tree, long, sickly, already deformed, swelling with ugly tumors on the chest and shoulders and drawing breath of life amid long drawn out agony. The cross was designed to be the most brutal, long-lasting, and enduring, humiliating death that could be done. Now, the Romans didn't invent crucifixion. That was done before them, maybe millennia before. Maybe the Assyrians, the Babylonians, some speculate, but they do know that the uh, Battle of Carthage that the Romans fought, they were crucifying Roman soldiers and, and Roman elite the, uh, the, in Carthage. And so they took this practice and adopted it. And one thing they did do is they nearly perfected the practice. It was reserved for the lowliest of lows, for slaves and rebels, people who were not worthy to be seen in the household of a Roman, and especially those who led slaves in rebellion. So we have Jesus coming into Jerusalem while people are declaring him son of David, coming to restore Zion, getting these Romans out of here. That was his death sentence right there. As soon as the word king and Jesus and king and Jew were uttered and embodied, he was dead. That's the historical reality of why Jesus was killed. Historically speaking, Jesus was going to die as soon as the word Messiah came out of anyone's lips because that was the reality of an occupied people by the greatest military power that's ever existed, oppressing the people of Palestine and the Jews. So Jesus was a dead man walking, knowing full well that once he came out of that river baptized by his cousin John and walking into the desert tempted by the devil, that as soon as he didn't bow down to the Satan, 
he was a dead man. The Satan said, kneel down before me and all this is yours. Now, when we talk about crucifixion, there's a lot of like really deep dive theological mumbo jumbo and there's been countless books There's been countless essays and blog posts and even tweets about the crucifixion. There's numerous theories, seven to nine of them, depending on which camp you lie in. And we could go through Anselm's ransom theory or Thomas Aquinas' feudal theory. We could go through Christus Victor or penal substitution or another substitutionary atonement that's called the governmental theory where it's not like your actual penalty, but it's a representation of the thing. And it goes down the list over and over and over. And I was telling uh, Kendall and Aaron earlier this week, I got lost in the black hole of atonement theology. And for your sake, the spirit of the loving God drew me out of this black hole and said, don't get into the history of the atonement theories and try to make it make sense. Instead, just tell the story. Tell the story of who Jesus is. Paul has a lot of things to say about the cross and they're really good things and we get a lot of our theology from the things that Paul said. But... The Gospels tell the story of the incarnate God who comes in the shape of a human baby and condescends as he brings heaven to earth and walks among us. From that very beginning, we see the forces of evil converge against this incarnate God. Herod the Great orders that the babies are killed in this area and making Jesus and his family flee to Egypt. He was under attack the moment he stepped foot with a foot. The forces of evil did not want Jesus to be on this earth. As he begins his ministry, the chief scribes and the priests and the Sadducees and the Pharisees, they don't like what he's saying. And they start from a very early point, even when he's in Galilee plotting, how can we kill this person? We hear what they're saying. We haven't had a prophet in 400 years. We are hearing little inklings of Messiahship. He's not the right birth. He's not the right tribe. He's not the right location. He's not the right son. Not this guy. Not now. We need somebody that we can put a crown on. So they start plotting to kill Jesus. And then we get his friend who walks into the garden where Jesus already knows what is gonna happen and he sweats these agonist, bloody tears. And his friend looks him in the eye and says, basically, this is over. And Jesus says, okay. A kiss on the cheek and away he goes. Then the Romans get involved. It started out as this little Jewish scrap, these people always rebelling and revolting. And it's like, what are you guys doing? There's no possible way you can overcome this state of Rome, but you keep 
on trying. But now the Jewish leaders are like, hey, we, here's one. Here's one. We're not trying right now. There, here's a guy. He's threatening all of us. And so they're like, okay, let's, let's try this. So Herod hears him out and he sends him to Pilate, which they didn't even like each other at the time. And then Pilate is like, they're, they're talking, or Pilate sends him to Herod. Herod sends him back to Pilate with a crown and this mockery. And that day, it's proven that they became friends and their solidarity their plight against Jesus. So evil is after Jesus. Attempts are being made, and here we go. He's sentenced to die. He carries his cross, and he climbs the hill. Jesus is placed and fastened on the cross, and nails are driven into his hands. Matthew Sparing as some of the details just says he was crucified. Yeah. That crucifixion was ugly. His friends had deserted him and they were hiding behind locked doors. The cross does that, doesn't it? It can push some people away. While there were others, faithful women who followed him, who were still standing watching Jesus, not in the loincloth, but stripped completely naked. Strapped and beaten and bloody upon the cross. Now, we, we typically see like the passion narrative where the cross goes up and it's like Mel Gibson's version of it, which is brutal in its own sense. But the cross was meant to be eye level with the people who were passing by. And it was put on a very frequented path so that people could see because the sheer point of the execution was public shame and mockery. The shame is the thing that we cannot take away from the cross, which we want to in this culture that we live in and the culture of honor, shame that Jesus participated in and subverted against, but this was the divine condescension. This was the way in which the savior of the human race was to die, looking people in the eye, sped upon and rejected, crying out and utterly and completely humiliated. Now we see that and we feel that and it's an uncomfortable reality that we live in but we are people of the cross. We are people of the way. Now so what, what is it about the cross that makes it important for us? Why did Jesus have to die? Why did Jesus have to die this way? Well, this question, why does produce the theories, and while that's all fine and good, why is powerful, however, you don't have to actually know why in order to experience the power of the thing that happened. Just like you don't have to know music theory to appreciate a good violin solo. You don't have to go to culinary school in order to enjoy a well-cooked meal. You don't even have to be able to explain a sunset in order to experience its beauty. 
So there's a lot of theories and things and questions as to why, and they are important because they do produce what is Christian theology and it has implications on how we practice the ways of Jesus. But what I want to get to this week as we talk about the crucified Christ is in the words of N.T. Wright in his book, The Day Revolution Began. The New Testament insists in book after book that when Jesus of Nazareth died on the cross, something happened as a result of which the world is a different place. So we might not be able to fully articulate the why Jesus died and the way that he did, and we don't have to parse out each word in the text as we look through Scripture, which they keep leading to this point in which Jesus is crucified. But we know at that moment, starting in verse 45, I'll read, from noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine and picked the stick up and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Then Jesus cried again in a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who, were, who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake take place, they were terrified and said, truly, this man was the son of God. Something happened when this man was crucified. Something visibly, tangibly, experientially happened in the time and place when Jesus breathed out his last breath. Something happened. We get craziness about people coming out of tombs and hanging out and appearing to maybe their relatives. And we're like, what in the world is going on here? But what we have and what we do know is that on the cross, something happened through Jesus. Now, as we go through the liturgical year and go through Lent and get to Good Friday, we get so pumped about Easter and resurrection, which we are people of the resurrection, but we can't miss the point. Resurrection wasn't saving Jesus from what happened on the cross. It revealed the victory that was won on the cross. It revealed the victory. See, the first few centuries of the church, Christians were scandalized by the cross. I think there's a picture up or somewhere over here that shows like some early graffiti on a home that says Alexander worshiping his God. And if you can't see it, it's a donkey head on a man on a cross with somebody worshiping. It's a mockery. It's a joke. It's scandalous. It's shameful. It's abhorrent. It is a terrible thing. And the Christians who were people of the resurrection going out on mission of God, believing in the hope of the kingdom had to make sense of this cross. 
Now we see the beautiful gold and we love it and it is something that draws us and brings us in, but the reality of the cross, it is full of the shameful humiliation and where Jesus comes, it becomes his actual conclusion through his descent from heaven as a child. Him reacting against Satan in the desert, he begins this descent all the way down to the lowest of human possibilities to where this death now is the death that conquers death. The cross is where all of evil, all of it, came together to completely encapsulate and humiliate and torture the Son of God. And while evil thought it had won, in fact, it was the exact opposite that no one had anticipated. And Jesus breathes out his last, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then it is finished. It is done. The cross looms large. Next week, we're gonna talk about what it looks for us to be crucified, so don't show up. Um, no, please seriously show up. I like it when people come to this church. But you don't have Christian or a Christian church or a community of Jesus followers without the cross. And we paint pretty pictures, we do, and we make sense of it, but the fact is the cross, even though it's magnanimous in its effect, is polarizing. It brings people in, but at the same way, people respond by going the other way and hiding behind the locked doors. It has real implications on our life. We're going to talk about that a lot more next week, but what I want to say is the crucified God bore all the shame and evil into his body as he breathed out his last for us. Band's gonna come up and play some pretty music. And while I know that you are craving some application tonight, some practicality, okay, I get it. Now what do you want me to do? I feel like tonight, let's just prime that pump. Because next week, we're going to tell you what to do. Actually, Jesus and Paul are going to tell you what to do next week. But the cross is here. It's up there. It's designed in this way to fix your gaze up. But what I don't want us to miss is the reality of what the cross actually meant for our Savior that we worship and sing about. So if you will, wherever you're at, however you want to respond to the proclamation through music and worship, I want to pray over us for a moment. I'm going to pray the Psalm 22, the first half of it. A song written by David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me? From the words of my groaning, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but find no rest. 
yet you are holy and thrown on the place praises of Israel. In you our ancestors trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. And they cried and they were saved. In you they trusted, but were not put to shame. But I am a worm, I am not human, scorned by others and despised by the people. All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me and they shake their heads. Commit your cause to the Lord. Let him deliver, let him rescue the one in whom he delights. Yet it was you who took me from the womb and kept me safe at my mother's breast on you. I was cast from my birth. And since my mother bore me, you have been my God. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near. And there is no one to help. Many bulls encircle me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My mouth is dried up like a posture, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs are all around me. A company of evildoers encircle me. My hands and feet are shriveled. I can count all my bones. They stare and they gloat over me. They divide my clothes among themselves. In my clothing, they cast lots. Now, the words of David, even the words proclaimed by Jesus as he is quoting scripture on the cross, permeate through you as we sing. We're going to sing what's uh, probably a new song to you guys. And so let's just let the, the words Chase has just shared with us. And maybe the, the image in the window or the cross behind us just uh, speak to us as we, as we sing this song. resources or information about Kaleo, please visit our website at kaleophx.com or follow us on social media. If this episode has been helpful to you, let us know or share it with someone you know.